Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortez, the producer and host of today's episode. And today we'll be talking with Dr. Aroni Sanchez about his recently published book, Homeland. Aroni Sanchez is a Chicano intellectual and cultural historian. His book, Homeland, Ethnic Mexican Belongings Since 1900, was published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 2021. He received his PhD from Southern Methodist University, and his dissertation won the 2014 National Association for Chicana and Chicano Studies Texas Focal Dissertation Award for Best Dissertation in Tejana Tejano Studies. He is a professor of history at Dallas College in Dallas, Texas. In addition to his uh, academic publications, Sanchez's writings, where he provides historical context and perspective on contemporary issues through a Latinx lens, have appeared in nationally acclaimed journalistic outlets like the Washington Post, Latino USA, NPR's Code Switch, Sojourners, and the Texas Observer, among others. He was awarded the 2019 Award of Excellence from the ACP for Best Monthly Column for his writing in Sojourners. Apart from being a writer and a professor, he is a happy husband, a proud father, an avid runner, and a dog lover. And I am so excited that you included that because I've been thinking about getting a dog. So maybe we can talk about <laughs> the, the pros and cons of having a dog off air. But Aron, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. And I of do course. recommend uh, getting I was a dog. Wondering if... <laughs> yeah, you do. Okay, great, great. <laughs> Um, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Perhaps tell us a bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, who you worked with, who you were inspired by, and how you became interested in the topic of Chicana Chicano intellectual history and ethnic Mexican identity making in Texas and the Southwest more broadly. Yeah, so uh, I was born in California, actually, but but didn't spend too much time there. My dad was in the Air Force. He was born and raised in El Paso, Texas. Uh, and my mom was born in Juarez. And so that's where most of our family comes from, the El Paso Juarez area. Um, and he joined the Air Force and we moved around for a little bit and ended up for two long portions in uh, Wichita, Kansas. And we lived right outside of Wichita, Kansas in a tiny uh, a tiny suburb named called Rose Hill, Kansas. And then we moved to Abilene, Texas, out in, in West Texas. And that's where I finished up uh, middle school and high school. Uh, and then went off to college in, in San Antonio. And so while I was out in West Texas, um, I had never up until college read any I, anything Chicana, Chicano studies, no uh, Latina, Latino authors, no Latin American authors. Um, and so when I got to, to San Antonio, it was it was like a breath of fresh air. And, and uh, I joke, I had never I had never actually thought about graduating uh, from college I had gone because I knew my mom would be sad if I didn't apply or didn't go and so I just kind of followed my sister there who's who's the much better student than and even now I bet uh, <laughs> 
But I got there and I started taking by by pure chance. I, I had a bad registration time and I couldn't get into any courses. And so my sister had taken a course with Dr. Arturo Madrid uh, in at, at Trinity University. And she told me, you know, go pick up a pink slip tell him you're my brother and he'll let you in. And so I did. And that class, I got, I got hooked. We read um, North from Mexico in that class. We read David Montejanos, Anglos and Mexicans. Um, we read Juan Gonzalez's em- uh, Harvest of Empire, right? Um, and a bunch of other stuff. And, uh, and after that, I, I was just, I was, I was hooked. I couldn't get enough of it. And so I, I also would, you know, I, I uh, I used to like ditch intro to psychology class and things like that, but not to go party, but I would go read back issues about Slan in the library um, just because I was so interested in this topic. And, and so for, for four years, I, before I got there, I had no idea what a professor was or did or what a PhD was. Um, and so I kind of just modeled myself after those professors, um, especially Arturo Madrid, who was my, uh, my mentor there. And figured that they do really cool things. I guess I could try my hand at that. <laughs> and they were encouraging and they explained to me what graduate school was because I had no idea what it was. Uh, we were first generation college students, uh, my sister and I. And so I, I went off to, to graduate school and um, Antonia Casaneda, uh, who was down in San Antonio, we had a chance encounter in, in the library. I worked at the library and I was looking for graduate programs and, and she mentioned that uh, SMU might be a good fit because they focus on the Southwest. Their stipend was was rather generous, and and they had a top notch historian and, and John Chavez there, who who she thought would would fit my interests well. Um, and that was because at at Trinity, I came out of I, I double majored in history and Latino studies, but most of my coursework was in the kind of interdisciplinary. Uh, cultural analysis that you do in in kind of more Latino studies things and and so it wasn't necessarily traditional history um, and so she thought someone like John Chavez who has that background in in literature and in American studies would be a really good fit um, so I went off to graduate school there and I still was this is like the first time I was I mean it sounds bad but this is where I actually became a, an Americanist right like these are my first US history courses uh, where I where I actually uh, become a real US historian in in graduate school and, and taking classes John Chavez and I'm still not a hundred percent sure what I'm doing I'm 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 I'm, I'm still I still love literature I still love poetry I still love all of this stuff. And I just can't see myself giving that up to go read, I don't know, like political telegrams and, you know, letters from diplomat diplomats for that kind of stuff, um, which seemed like what, you know, quote unquote historians did. Um, and so I, I remember talking to John Chavez and, and explaining him kind of my interests, right. Of being able to see that there's, there's not truth in fiction or poetry, but there's something important about the ideas there. And he goes, well, yeah, of course. I, I think what you're trying to do is, is uh, intellectual history, a history of ideas. And, and then I was like, oh, of course, then it clicked. Right. And then I felt like I could actually do what it is I wanted to do and connect all of the various sources that I was using and drawn to, to tell a bigger history. And so I think those, those are like two connections, I think that run through my workers, clearly the influence of, of 
kind of my dissertation advisor, John Chavez, and, and my undergraduate mentor, Arturo Madrid. Um, Arturo Madrid wrote early uh, essays on like the Pachuco and the Pocho in those early Atzlan articles. And, and then you kind of see the influence of, of, of John Chavez's work through the Lost Land and Beyond Nations in my work as well. Um, so finished up there and, and uh, kept working on, on the dissertation and got it turned into a book. That's that's so exciting that we could uh, we could talk a whole podcast just about that. I mean, it's, I'm especially interested in this move to Kansas because I also have family in Wichita, Kansas, and it's like, what are what are you know what are Chicanos doing there, right? <laughs> um, but they're doing a lot there, so but that's for another another book maybe. Um, and I, I want to move us into into the book into Homeland, right? And I want us to walk. I want you to walk us through some of the main points in the introduction, right? And situate us within the fields and concepts that you intervene, right? Notions of belonging, homeland politics, and the importance of citizenship. But um, before we get into that, I want to I wanna pull on something that you talked about um, in your bio where you say, you're talking about like, oh, this notion of intellectual history gave you um, a better understanding of how to bring all of your interests together, right? And so I want to ask you why you felt the, it important to stress in your book. Um, that your book is a Chicana Chicano intellectual history, right? And you write on page three, quote, I assert that not only were ethnic Mexicans, manual laborers, conquered people and segregated proletarians, but they were also people who thought deeply and profoundly about their position in the world, end quote. And you go on to make clear that the book is not a social, a quote, not a social history of prominent Mexican American intellectuals. And I ask, and I'm asking this question um, because often graduate students, especially, are asked to define their work in a certain kind of history, and those 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 limits or definitions aren't always clearly defined. So my question to you, my first question is, why is this distinction between intellectual history and the social history of intellectuals so important? And then, how do you define for yourself uh, intellectual history? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really great question. I wanted to call it an intellectual history for a couple of, of reasons. Certainly, I wanted to speak directly to uh, the larger field of, of U.S. intellectual historians and, and intellectual historians or the world of, of the, kind of the history of ideas, because when I started reading those works and attending those conferences, they were certainly, all those historians were certainly interested in, in asking the same kinds of questions that I was. But every time I heard their presentations, uh, ethnic Mexicans and Latinxes and Latinas and Latinos were not part of the conversation, right? They weren't even asked about in many of those areas. And I was uh, I was a bit speechless. I was I asked myself, like, what do you mean we're, we're not in... You're not asking about us. You're not seeing us as, as central to these questions that you're asking. Um, and so I was speaking directly to like the field there that has kind of not talked about us uh, in many cases. So I wanted the work to be recognized in that field. I made the distinction in Chicano Chicano history because, as, as you know, there's a, kind of a a long legacy for better words of social history and labor history. And while those terms have grown, right, like now we're past like the new social history to like the new, new social history or however many news you want to add on there, maybe like a new with a little exponent exponent of like three or something like that. Um, But it's certainly, I think the focus is a little bit more on just kind of um, their lives or what they're doing in the right organizing in factories or fields in many cases. And so you ask, a bit of 
a different set of questions there. And, and so, you know, the social history of, of intellectuals or the social history of ideas is more concerned with, uh, you know, like, who did they, who did they have? I mean, this is an exaggeration, right? But like, who do they have as, as a, like a grammar school teacher or something like that? Um, and, and so those, those details are important, but if we're asking it about these larger ideas, maybe not so much, right? That there, there is that social history of ideas does span social history and, and the history of ideas. And so with this being called an intellectual historian, I, I wanted to place ethnic Mexicans within these big ideas that folks had been talking about. I mentioned a bit in the beginning, right? Kind of White's history on, um, the history of, of human rights, right? This is a world divided and it's big history of human rights. Um, someone like Mira Siegelberg's history of statelessness. Um, so, right, like there's these big ideas and very rarely are ethnic Mexicans talked about. And I thought, well, we fit directly into these conversations and in many cases wield those languages and discourses um, fluidly and fluently. Um, and so I was, I was certainly uh, clearly influenced by like Arez Manella's The Wilsonian Moment in which he, you know, he takes what we thought of these ideas and just kind of shifts them a little bit, looks at them from a different perspective. I thought that was a really brilliant work. Um, I was influenced by uh, the similar work of like John Chavez's Beyond Nations. And so his history of, of nationalisms um, using Chicana and Chicano internal colonialism and, and applying that kind of thought from different groups there, or even someone like uh, Raul Coronado's A World Not to Come, where he he puts this group at the center of the Enlightenment, right? And, and really gives us this different set of ideas of, of the Atlantic world or of the Enlightenment. Um, and so I wanted to do that with, with this set of ideas in the 20th century of, of the rise of the nation state, of nationalisms, of belonging. Um, and and one of the issues there with, with belonging is, if we're trying to think of why I called it an intellectual history, but uh, I was, folks encouraged me to try to define belonging more concretely uh, at the beginning of the book. And I hesitated a bit just because I didn't want to say this is the definition of belonging. I've, I've heard some feedback from folks, not all scholars, some of the reviews haven't come back, but from other folks who have used, who have, who have read about belonging and found it applicable. And I just want to say, this is the way I'm working with belonging, but it can certainly mean something different and it can certainly be portable or applicable in different studies. And so that's why if you're kind of looking through um, for, for these, for like an expansive or, or a concrete definition of, of belonging, I don't give it that concrete definition exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, at least for me in the introduction, it, it was so clear about about who you're talking to, who you want to talk to, and what fields and subfields you're intervening in. And I think that sort of unapologeticness of it was really inspiring to read, to be like, it's okay to be completely sure about who you're writing to, right? And who you're talking to. Um but, but more broadly in the introduction, can you talk to us just about setting the scene, right? Homeland politics, citizenship, nationalism. Um, what, is the, what are you trying to do in this introduction? Yeah, so certainly I think uh, just responding to that is, is the, the idea that, that uh, I'm confident enough to place myself 
out there and say, this is what I'm doing probably comes with the fact that I've been out of graduate school for a little while. <laughs> you know, there is some hesitancy there. And then you get out of it and you realize like it, it's, it won't be the end of the world if someone says something mean <laughs> about your work, like it mm. won't destroy me yet. So <laughs> it was hard earned. I, I certainly maybe seven years ago, uh, five years ago, would it have been, I, I would have been much more nervous to do that. Um, but mm. yeah, so uh, going back, uh, oh, I just went blank there. What was, uh, can you remind me of your Do the introduction, can you, talk, can you talk about the importance of homeland politics, yes. right? You named the book Homeland, yes. right? And you talk a bit about the, the conversation of these politics in the, in the introduction. Why are they so important? Yeah, sorry about that, Jonathan. Yeah, uh, no, so I was trying to think of this, again, putting these, these big changes that were occurring um, and really thinking about ethnic Mexicans as not being passive. I think in kind of the, the new borderlands history, which is, gate, well, which has, has is, certainly gets a lot of attention now. And uh, when I was in graduate school, was kind of the ascendant way of looking at this. There's this sense that like ethnic Mexicans are, are are kind of like talked about, but they're not participating in at the center of these ideas and conversation. And so um, I wanted to to again look at how ethnic Mexicans were developing their own ideas of nationalisms and how these ideas were impacting them and how they were, they were changing them. And so we began, and, and of course, a lot of this wasn't my original research uh, in the 1900s is you have folks like where I get the, the, concept of homeland politics, Emilio Zamora talking about this Mexicanist tradition, right? Before we get these huge waves uh, of, of Mexican migration in the middle of the Mexican Revolution, that you have these groups that largely understand themselves as Mexicano, um, and they come together. And, and I say, like, the high point there is is that, that primer uh, Congreso Mexicanista, um, in many cases. And so, yeah, they their understanding of themselves as as kind of mexicano there is that there's not necessarily that division between one side of the border or the other citizenship isn't the main division to except there's the division is class almost in at that meeting um but they're working together the the the, the shifts that come after the revolution kind of break that Mexicanist tradition when you get these large groups of folks who consider themselves Mexican and then they come into contact with these U.S.-born Mexicans and they say there's nothing Mexican about you. And so those aren't just intra-community debates, like I mentioned. Those are actually really important debates in the way that they're they're thinking about what the border means, what uh, what kind of industrialization means, what it means, what, what a nation means, what a nation state could be or should be or how it's going to work. Um, and so those debates, while they're being debated over who's Mexican and who's not, they're actually connected to these larger uh, sets of ideas in in right in, in the kind of west side barrios of San Antonio or in El Paso or Brownsville. Yeah, and this brings us a bit into chapter one, right, where you talk about um, that specific shift between late 19th century um, uh, Mexicanist identity and like sort of um, the, before, right, the, sol- the solidification of nation states and the importance of citizenship, you're talking about how um, regionalism was really important, right? My, my family's from Jalisco or whatever. We're like, we're all Mexican or but like you said, it was less about nation and citizenship and more about perhaps division of class. But in chapter one, you do a really great job at laying that out. Um, and then you say that these sort of three waves of Mexican migration in the early 20th century drastically shift the population um, 
in predominantly ethnic Mexican neighborhoods to be predominantly Mexican exiles, right? From Mexico during the Mexican Revolution, the Cristero Revolt, um, labor opportunities. There are multiple push and pull factors, right? But can you talk a bit about um, how and specifically how Mexican nationals thought of U.S.-born Mexicans during this time in the early 20th century? And perhaps you can even get into this idea of Mexico de afuera, right? Why is that? Why does that become such an important um, community formation tactic? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, regionalisms are going to be really important for this, especially in like the 19th and early 20th century. And we're going to see that there are these tensions of, of and, and competitions between these romantic regionalisms crashing into nationalisms and being superseded, but that's going to be a really messy process on top of the fact that you have revolution and forced migration and then, and then another nationalizing project in the U S Southwest. And so all those are colliding. Um, All those things are colliding in Texas and and these different barrios there. Um, and so you start to get to see this the, these these folks um, come into these these places, right? Uh, I mentioned San Antonio a lot, but uh, at first you have these kind of fairly well off exiled politicians. Um, they might be folks like Madero who comes to the U.S. for a little while. Um, they they might be the Flores Magón brothers who come for a little bit, right? And so there's there's these kind of uh, more better off folks who come and and those folks come with some capital in many cases as well. Um, But given the kind of racial politics of the United States, where they can end up is in neighborhoods that they probably wouldn't have lived in, in Mexico. Right. Um, And so they see these working class U S born Mexicans as, as, as below them in many cases, but they are also wanting them to be Mexican, but using them as, as examples of what could go wrong because the U S is bad. When we start seeing more of that anti U S sentiment in the revolution, but those kind of elite folks begin to open newspapers and they write for newspapers and op-eds. They, they create uh, La Prensa in San Antonio and they open papers across the Southwest. And those are really important. They're some of the most important Spanish language newspapers and really the the, the, the organs that, that get out ideas um, in, in these communities. And they really do start looking at these working class U.S. born Mexicans as, as being troubled because they start to think of themselves as, well, what are they, right? So if they're exiled, what are they? Are they, are they Mexicans? Well, the nation they're they're kind of thrown out of that why what's going on there and so they start to think of themselves as this real mexico de afuera um and so i I wanted to kind of historicize that and contextualize it because i've seen it kind of mentioned in 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 other articles and, and and uh monographs as kind of translated as like greater mexico which is right americo paredes's term and and i i understand why folks would want to translate it that, but I thought in like the twenties, it was not this across the Mexico into the U S connection. It wasn't like this transnational sense of interconnectedness. Mexico de Afuera had this very clear delimited sense of what Mexicanness meant and what the end goal was in many cases. And so they start writing about what it means to be Mexican. And that's where we get these 
conflicting senses of like patria and the nation state of patriotism and and what it is because you get this this sense that uh, that they represent the essence, right? In some of those articles, they're talking about how like the nation is the air that you breathe, like the love that you give, and right, and so that that you can take that with you, that they can represent that essence, and it can exist for a little while outside of its native soil, but you have to go back, right? Like it's it can't exist forever outside of that soil. And so you need to go back and plant it. And so it's their duty to return and also keep that essence, that that essential character of Mexicanness, or else it will be lost, right? The, the nation's in shambles now. And so the true Mexicans who are living outside in this Mexico de Afuera have to maintain this, this pure form and then return. And if that's what they need, they start looking at these U.S. born Mexicans in many cases who are right, who who are beginning to show signs of of, of their kind of bicultural lived experience that they do speak a little bit of Spanglish, um, that they consume American products, that their food is made uh, and flavored by American products, and they start saying like, "No, that's all wrong. You're wrong. That's dangerous." Um, and then they turn them into a trope, more or less, of, of these bochas and bochos, as they called them, who are these sad, deformed, deflated shells of Mexicans that show just how insidious or how bad American culture can be. Um, and so you had like real Mexicans, and then you had bochas and bochos, and then real Mexicans were going to eventually return. And if you stayed, you were going to be nothing but a bocha or a bocho. And, and those, those bochas and bochos show up in a lot of different ways. Uh, I show them pop up in novels. Um, there's multiple novels that, that take aim at bochas and bochos um, in, in Los Angeles and, and in San Antonio across Texas and, and the Southwest. They show up in corridos uh, and they show up in, in, in the interviews that someone like Manuel Gamio conducted between 1926 and 28. And Gamio really is... Right, like he's interested in this idea of Mexicanness because, as as kind of an academic and a scholar, he's he's interested in how does Mexico forjar patria? How do they make this kind of this sense of 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 national identity? The same time that you've got all these folks up here, and then he concludes at the end of those interviews that that these U.S. born Mexicans are are people without a home, right? Like they they don't belong. They've lost belonging in either place and they're kind of they are more he doesn't call them pochas and pochos but more or less they are right like that that term uh that they've been called in other forms is is true is what gamio comes to conclude yeah and you you say this you write this really interesting line um and here you're talking about the folks who identify as afuerenses right or, or the community that has formed mexico de afuero you say Aforenses could be sure that their patriotism. Um, sorry, one second. I have typed it out incorrectly, but I know the page number, so I'm going to go right to it. Um, you say aforenses could be assured. Uh, aforenses could be sure that their patriotism, because those in Mexico of their patriotism, because those in Mexi- Mexico were destroying the country and those outside of Mexico were forgetting it. And so towards the end of this first chapter, you do such a good job at talking about and laying out 
how and how and why Afuerenses were so important to the forging of a Mexican nationalism, especially with the building of Mexican consulates in places like San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, who were throwing like festivals, who were who were really forging a, a, a patria through the exiled. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I, I mentioned in the book that I don't think the Afuerenses, that was their intention, right? It was almost an unwitting mixture of this Mexico de Afuera and this Forjando Patria, because many of them were revolutionary exiles, whether they were more radical exiles or if they were more conservative exiles. But it was this incense, it was it was this idea that one there were these specific things that Mexican meant, uh, in many cases, maintaining sort of Spanish, a particular type of Spanish that certainly was not Spanglish, um, conservative gender roles, right? Mexican men behaved this way. Mexican women behaved this way. Um, and they operate under these roles. This is, and a couple of other things, this is what it meant to be Mexican. And then they belonged solely in Mexico and not the U.S. And so the Mexican state, um, once we start moving into like the lesser violent period by the 20s, also tries to do that, right? They're trying to create this new Mexican nationalism because there had been an even there had been an uneven national identity in Mexico throughout the 19th century and early 20th century, not to say there was none, right? I, I don't mean to say that, but it was uneven. Um, and so the, 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 revo- the revolutionary government at that point, right, they're trying to institutionalize this new Mexican nationalism through things like the murals and, um, and, and the education system in the rural areas, uh, and so they're trying to form this citizenry, if you can, that, that largely subscribes to similar ideas of the Afuerenses, right? Saying, we belong here. This is what we are. Um, and they would go out. I mean, Vasconcelos runs for president in, in, in the United States, right? He visits San Antonio and Los Angeles and goes across the Southwest. Um, you have lots of those folks coming to uh, those areas and giving lectures or, or writing articles in in the Spanish language, Spanish language press. Um, and so they, they say, Hey, this is, this is good. And, and for, for many decades in the 20th century, uh, you know, the Mexican state thought that the folks who had come to the U S might, there could be something good with them returning to Mexico because maybe they bring back with them certain skills, right? Like if they learned how to do something in a factory, they can bring it back and apply. If they learned how to do something in, in the farms, they could, they could kind of bring it back. So this was their attempt. Like this was, this was opportune that they could still reach out and hold on to these folks and bring them back into their nationalizing project in many cases. So those, the, the kind of Mexico de Afuera and the Forjando Patria go hand in hand unwittingly. It wasn't intentional, but both those projects of trying to define belonging as being only in Mexico and being this certain set of behaviors or ideas kind of coincided. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for that that clarification. That was great. Um, So then uh, around the same time on the opposite end, right? U.S. US born Mexicanos or U.S. born Mexicans, uh, chapter two, the rise of Mexican Americanism. What, how do we get to that? Yes. And so this is right. The Mexican American generation is, is, is pretty well studied. It has been since the nineties in Chicana and Chicano and Chicanx history, certainly. And, and I think, you know, the idea of the Mexican American generation is, is, is Mario Garcia's term. Um, 
and and lots of ink has been spilled about how appropriate or useful it is or not. Um, and again, I think given it's our the kind of the the social history bent of of Chicana Chicano Chicanx history that you do get this sense like it's it is generational, right? Like that there are these social aspects, and I think many historians have emphasized like oh they go to World War II. They're surrounded by the patriotism of World War II. They fight abroad. They come back and say, no, you know, we're U.S. soldiers. Uh, we don't believe in those things anymore. We deserve rights. And while there, uh, there's validity to that, I, I thought it was much more complicated than that. Or I, I thought it was much more um, complex than that. That wasn't the only thing that was going on. In fact, those ideas, what, which I found in the primary sources, were, were happening much sooner than 1942 or 43 or 45 or 54. Um, much of what I saw is that that division, the rise of Mexican Americanism, the term and the ideas that underlied that identity were rooted in the homeland politics, those really alienating and uh, homeland politics of the 1920s that I, I, I conclude chapter one saying that effectively U.S. born Mexicans are expelled. They're kicked out of Mexico de Afuera because they're seen as being really un-Mexican. And I, I largely say that that stings, that leaves a mark, that influences their ideas because they start to say, well, if we're not Mexican, then what are we? Right. And, and that group starts to say, well, we're American. Maybe we belong in the U.S. Maybe those those afuerenses are right. We don't belong in Mexico. Many of us never lived in Mexico. Um, many of us have no int- intention to go to Mexico or return to Mexico. And so maybe this is where we belong. And if that's the case, uh, then how do we how do we assert our belonging? How do we make it stick? Um, and so getting kicked out of Mexico de Afuera is really important. And then getting their belonging to stick, to have it seen as as valid as recognized that's when they start to see that turn to citizenship it wasn't just that we we served in world war ii they start they understand by the 20s and 30s is that citizenship is becoming this new legitimate means of belonging right like that's the way that it's that that folks that you're going to be recognized as belonging here is if, if you're a citizen and so that's why we start seeing those groups in the 1920s those early mexican-american groups in san antonio like the order sons of america and the order knights of america um it, it, they are the ones who start to say no this is this is for u.s citizens right like part of it is if we can't be part of your group we're going to form our own group and this is how we understand our responsibilities and our obligations and and what we are and where we belong and you see the 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 effect you still see the impact of Afuerense ideas end up being called bochas and bochos in those early groups um some of my favorite quotes come in that second chapter um where i think it's in 1926 um the, the president of, of the Order of Sons of America writes in this mailer, like once and for all, we have to stop being beggars of a nationality, men without country. He writes this in Spanish, of course, right? So it's, tenemos que dejar de ser mendigos de nacionalidad y hombres sin patria, right? And it sounds so much more poetic in Spanish, right? But he said, yeah, like we are beggars of a nationality, right? They feel fully displaced. They're kicked out. Some of those debates 
1929, when when those three organizations, um, the Latin American Citizens League, uh, the Order Knights of America, and the Order Sons of America, form into LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens in 1929, they more or less repeat that same idea that they are people without a country, right? Like folks get up in, in that debate and they say, like, if we don't do this, right, we are going to be these these wandering beggars who gave their children nothing. We're going to be these pariahs that don't belong anywhere. So maybe if we do this, our children will have a nation. Maybe if we do this, our children will have a home. And so that's 1929, much long. This is well before World War II. And you can't understand those those debates, you can't understand those speeches without understanding what had been going on through the 1920s of them being called bochas and bochos and these, you know, sad wannabe Americans. Um, in one book, they call bocha, they, they kind of call this bocha, they say, tu que eres una bocha infeliz que ni abolía llegas, right? Which is kind of hard to translate, but she's like, what are you? But it, like a sad wannabe American who doesn't even come close to being a white girl, right? This is what, what, what someone's saying to, to this U.S. born Mexican in, in the novel. Um, and so those ideas sting and that's what they're responding to in many cases of being kicked out of Mexico de Afuera, being displaced from that sense of belonging. Uh, they're responding to it and then they start to see their, the legitimate ways that their belonging is going to be recognized is through citizenship. And they start saying, well, we haven't been aware of this for a really long time and this is how we're going to make it stick. But it comes with some things that you have to do. You have to behave these certain ways, right? In many cases, they had to subscribe to these ideas of middle class comportment. And they talk about, uh, you know, the league, the, the they talk about Lulac being kind of like serving the role as a minister and teaching these poor folks how to behave. Uh, in many cases, they also talk about about being kind of, of, of being recognizably American in many cases of, of saying the Pledge of Allegiance, of trying to speak English, of, of asserting, yeah, that we are citizens in many cases. And again, in, in the context of the 20s and 30s, you're starting to see that citizenship does start to matter, especially once we get into the 30s and 40s, because we get the repatriation campaigns of the 1930s. Although many folks learn too that you can be a citizen and that doesn't keep you from getting deported, but it's an attempt to, right, it's they, they think, okay, well, maybe our citizenship isn't being recognized enough. In many cases, by the 1930s, um, the benefits, the, the the first social programs, the first uh, way to access those, the social safety net in the United States becomes dependent upon citizenship. Um, and so folks start to recognize like, okay, there is something about citizenship that's important that we better lay claim to. And again, b- before 1942 uh, or 45 in, in those time periods, uh, that they start saying, yes, citizenship is the way. And again, that conversation is occurring across the globe. After World War One. you you start to see those first, um, right, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapses and the nation state really begins to, to solidify. It becomes this, this recognized across the globe as this primary political human organizational unit. Um, and it really does start to grow that bureaucratic strength of those bureaucratic teeth to make it matter. Uh, and so ethnic Mexicans in the borderlands understand that, especially U.S. born Mexicans and Mexican-Americans understood that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about broadly this happening at the same time of the rise of like the start of the border patrol and like the hardening of the U S Mexico divide and like who is a citizen and who is not. Um, 
and it's interesting because it's not only citizen well it's citizenship but a certain type of citizenship right a, a, a whiteness a white a claim to whiteness that that underscores and undergirds and upholds the type of citizenship with which they were trying to maintain and and um get to but i want to i want to keep moving on because I, I think there's so much in this book to talk about so in chapter three um, even at the moment in the early 20th century when nationalisms were being hardened, right, the labor movement offers a disruption in some ways to citizenship and nationalism. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. Yeah, so chapter three focuses on on labor internationalism, especially among uh, the ethnic Mexican left. And there, if Mexican, right, if Mexico de Afuera was focusing on being like Mexican citizens and, and being specifically Mexican, and then Mexican-Americanism was focusing primarily on being U.S. citizens and this set of ideas, labor internationalism started to say, like, we don't want to recognize citizenship as that that primary determined of belonging, right? In fact, all those other things should be uh, seen as less important identities, right? Like this is workers of the world unite. And certainly that the legacy of the left in the United States is uneven. And, that, and that's what I try to make clear in, in the first part of that chapter is that while labor internationalism promises to be, like it hopes to be all workers of the world unite, there were issues of race and class in the United States, right? That the white labor unions in many cases didn't want black union members that in in some cases in texas both white and black unions were upset that mexican workers were coming in um and again it was because they were pitting all these folks they they were competing against one another in in many cases and so there was this scarcity for wages and resources uh intentionally but but the ethnic mexican left was this kind of transnational you had uh ethnic Mexican left, you had Mexican leftists coming up from Mexico in many cases, um, like the Flores Magón brothers writing uh, in places like Texas. And Texas had one of the widest circulation of their paper, right? They had a huge membership. And and given our sense of, of Texas politics today, that usually catches folks off guard. But you also have to remember, right, like Texas was also at the heart of the populist movement in the late 19th century. So there was a kind of radicalism that existed in Texas. Um, but yeah, like the, the whiteness of that radicalism could vary too, right? Like wh- how they defended it. Many folks uh, in Texas said like, I don't deserve to be treated like that because I'm a white man in many cases was the understanding of that, of that, that radicalism only went so far. The ethnic Mexican left radicalism was much more radical than that. In many cases, we find that it's more radical than that because it's led by like radical women activists um, who, who pushed our understanding of, of the purpose of sort of right. What we call today, like hetero patriarchy, but, but what the purpose of those gender roles was, what the purpose of, of gender oppression was, what the purpose of, 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 of labor oppression and, and those kind of things were, right. So understanding that there were these dual wage systems between white and black, but then there's also, or say black and white or white and, and Mexican, but also these systems of oppression that exist between men and women and that you have to work to eradicate all of those, um, those ideas worked, were at play in, in Texas, right. And within the ethnic Mexican population, I think you, my example of that was, was among the, the pecan shellers uh, under the lead of, of Emma Tenayuca in the 1930s. Um, so that you have all many ethnic Mexicans. These are both us born Mexicans and Mexican nationals who work in San Antonio shelling pecans and, and San Antonio, um, and that first part of the 20th century is is the capital of the pecan shelling industry, uh, and so they employed they employed thousands 
of ethnic Mexicans who who would literally break the pecan shell and get the meat out. Um, and they would work 12, 14 hour days and get paid horrible wages. They'd work in horrible working conditions um, with poor ventilation. Um, they had all kinds of health problems you can imagine. And so uh, they kept cutting wages in the thirties. And so finally in, in, in the thirties, they go on strike after a wage cut. Um, and that strike is, they, they try to put that strike down um, because they, they they claimed that almost all of them were communists and some were <laughs> right. Emma Tenayuka was was an unabashed communist. She was she was proudly communist, but there were also some liberal labor organizations there who tried to organize, but but their their organizers in many cases were these kind of white women who had negative views of the. Mexican, the ethnic Mexican women that they were organizing, right? They kind of went down and they were expecting to teach them manners and sewing classes. Like they were these weird, almost like Americanization programs that you would have seen in like the progressive era. And Emma Denayuka was like, no, we're going to teach, we're going to teach these women, uh, right? Like that, that these women already know how to organize. So we're going to work together, uh, and, and achieve something other than making, you know, of knitting something pretty. Um, we're going to, we're going to get some work done. Um, and eventually they, they force these concessions from the employers, and it ultimately does lead to the mechanization of the pecan shelling industry because they don't want to pay those wages. And unfortunately, too, um, the the jobs offered to the pecan shellers from the Work Project Administration, uh, there was there was a, a little over a thousand jobs available to these pecan sheller workers. Only a fraction of them went to them because they had to provide documentation of, of citizenship or they had to provide proof that they had residency for a certain month. So, but most of the folks who worked in pecan shelling did not live in San Antonio the majority of the year. They worked in the fields during the picking season and then they came to San Antonio during the winter season to scratch together enough money to, to survive. And so since so many of them were doing that, they didn't get those positions, right? Um, and so you it mixed in there it was it was this hopeful right even in in um labor unions like uh like Yucapawa, right that that Vicky Ruiz outlined in, in in California they were there in, in Texas as well and there's these great promises but then there's also there's kind of shortfalls I mean the harsh realities that they run into in many cases and then I, I kind of show that it that that New Deal liberalism also, it wasn't just like red scare tactics that that ended uh, the ethnic Mexican left. In, in many cases, it was it was like New Deal liberalism that did too, right? And it, and it was that context of, of New Deal liberalism that, that required citizenship, that required these, these certain aspects that actually allowed Mexican Americanism to really blossom, right? To actually become the dominant set of ideas for most of the 20th century. Um, and it's, it's contextualized there within that, that the kind of the, the what one historian called the end of reform in 36 and 37, where the more radical critiques of capitalism give way as we're moving toward world war two. And, and no longer do you say like capitalism has these real problems instead growth Capitalistic growth will end all inequality eventually because the rising tide will lift all boats. Um, and so the, the ability to make those critiques declines um, by the end of the 30s. 
Yeah. And then we sort of get into what you call the Mexican-American liberalism, right? Or what is maybe more commonly known in um, as the Mexican-American generation. So I'm curious to hear you talk about um, how this sort of, so you marketed from 1930s to 1970s, but really World War II and the post-war era, how Mexican-American liberalism becomes to be solidified and, 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 and as, as a vehicle for Mexican-American civil rights, right? Um, and then maybe we'll lump in together with Chapter 5, then the transition into um, a different kind of Chicano-Chicano politics. So, yeah, that's a lot. But I want to just continue here talking because you're doing such a good job. <laughs> Yeah, and so the, chapter four was, I mean, so when when you have to revise, um, so chapter four was completely new when I was revising from, say, like the dissertation to the book, right? Like this was completely new, and, and there was a couple of reasons for that. One, I learned a lot more since the dissertation, right? But also, and it was it was intentional because I wanted to put ethnic Mexicans at the center of these big ideas, right? So in intellectual history, this idea of liberalism is really important, right? Lots of folks are talking about it. In general, though, you get this sense of kind of like white liberals and then a lot of, say, like liberalism in the African-American community. When we were looking, when, when I was looking at it, I was saying like, well, what about ethnic Mexicans in many cases? What was going on here? So it's, it's an attempt to engage the history of ideas of the history of liberalism um, and also look at, Right, like put it into context with with another intellectual historian, uh, Daniel Rogers's idea of like the age of fracture, right? Like, so what begins to fracture there in many cases? And so I was thinking about what's what's going on in this time period, and then again trying to 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 understand these divisions is more than just generational and right. Like there wasn't just the Mexican generation and the Mexican American generation, the Chicano generation, like those, again, they're helpful um, in many cases as as shorthand, but it wasn't just like people were born 15 years apart (laughs) in many cases that we start to see that there are some really important shifts and ideas and why people make it and why people don't, or why folks would subscribe to this set of ideas in many cases. And so when I was looking at Mexican American liberalism, so much of it had to do with the way that like social science models understood how social progress is achieved. Right. Um, And so ethnic Mexicans are at the center of like, social change in the 20th century. And so we have like two avenues in the 20th century, right? Like we have reform, so social reform, or we have revolution uh, in many cases. And so if you're looking at like 1910 with the the Mexican revolution as being like the first social revolution of the 20th century does not work all that well. I mean, somewhat well, right? But by uh, even by the end of like uh, Lázaro Cárdenas' presidency, you see that shift away from that more radical to more of the growth of liberalism model of, of like the Mexican miracle. Right. Um, so revolution didn't work. So let's try social reform. And there was this understanding of like these preconditions that had to exist within communities for that reform to be able to take place. There were these models largely premised on the understanding of white Western European, or at least American communities on how you would achieve social program that were kind of developmental or hierarchical. Um, and so Mexican Americans who, who considered themselves right, like educated and in, in conversation with these ideas, tried to make 
make the community fit those. They wanted to make sure that folks understood the Mexican American community uh, within those models. And so that's why you start to see many Mexican Americans talk about like the history of Texas. Right. Um, And so in, in the mid 20th century, there's this idea of like, uh, right, like the, the consensus historians say that the American Revolution, that the United States is really important in showing the world how to achieve social progress and social change peacefully the right way, right? And that our revolution wasn't violent and destructive like the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 and all those other ones eventually, like the Cuban Revolution, right? Like these bad ones. Ours was this, this ours was the model. Like you should really follow the American model that was like liberal and Lockean. And so we had these certain ways to understand it well if mexican americans wanted to be considered that part they, they couldn't right like there weren't mexican american minutemen at that time but they largely lock onto this idea that like the texas revolution is their way to fit themselves into this larger story right and so they weren't colonized they weren't conquered they weren't uncivilized and again all these are like in quotes in many cases right like the mexicans weren't uncivilized that they were actually civilizers um and and that they were fitting like the same project and and, and in some cases they lean on like Bolton's idea of, of civilization is going from like south to north in many cases since they couldn't fit themselves into the more ternarian model of east to west um And so they talk about them being like specifically American and there's these attempts to say like, oh, you know, like our pantheon of heroes, our days of Allah and Juan Seguin and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, right? Like one and the same. And even though we never got to ride with Washington, we did ride in, in, you know, in a similar revolution that would as like a stand in, they would call um, different battles in the Texas revolution, like the Lexington of Texas, like trying to intentionally make those analogs, right. Uh, Making those connections uh, so that folks recognize them as, to, to some extent, right, as like white civilizers as well. Um, and then in the social sciences too, right, uh, there was this idea like this is what you have to, that you have to achieve these certain preconditions for development um, and you can follow these models. And so like Mexican-American social scientists also subscribe to those because they that would have been, for better or worse, the academic consensus. Um, and so they tried to, use those models, right? They actually tried to to carry them out. And some Mexican-American or ethnic Mexican or U.S.-born Mexican social scientists really stretch those models and find out that they don't work very well. Um, And they start to kind of fall apart uh, or or break down in many cases. And so I got to look at... um, you know, I, well, I think there's some really interesting work coming out. Um, there's an intellectual historian named Natalie Mendoza, um, who's at, at at the University of Colorado, who's doing really great stuff looking at at the like George Sanchez and Carlos Castaneda and comparing it to like Bolton and their use of these uh, these like historical modes and, and like these models, these historical models, which which is great and influenced uh, the book. And then there's um, like the historian Ruben Flores, who looks at like pragmatism and, and liberalism there that influenced it. Um, but but when I started to look at some of these early Chicano social scientists and how they were using it, and that's when I, I kind of went back and was looking at someone like Jose Angel Gutierrez's master's thesis, right? So Jose Angel Gutierrez, uh, kind of most 
famously or infamously known as the head of La Raza Unida party who gave kind of the I want to kill the gringo speech uh, that was out of context. Um, but it's kind of recognized as like this radical, right? He wanted like the separate, the separatist third party. And, and that wasn't really the case. If you look at what he was arguing about revolution, he really meant social change. And, and the models that he was subscribing to weren't that radical. They weren't that Marxist. They weren't like Maoist or communist, but they were largely based off these liberal ideas. And so it had to do with the context, like that, that some of these more radical terms, the, the kind of the radical language, what I say in the book is stuck to like this liberal grammar that had been developed largely by the U.S. for most of the 20th century. And it's when Chicana and Chicano academics begin to really try to test those theories and those models that they start to crack. They realize they don't work, right? Um, and so uh, you see that in, in, say, the work, like the, the graduate work of like David Montejano, right? Like he starts uh, as, as a sociology graduate student and he's going to write about the Brown Berets and their politicization. Well, the way that mid-century sociology understood politicization is like there's like the lumpen and then there's these groups that you can organize, right? And they're, they're dialectically opposed. You can't be one and be the other. You have to be one or the other. Um, and it moves only one way. Well, if he was trying to apply those same models, it, it didn't fit, right? And he got so frustrated that he abandoned that dissertation and he had to find a new way of explaining what was going on, right? And it, it took him years later to be able to write what he wanted to write about the Brown Berets, but in the process wrote, right, like Anglos and Mexicans in the making of Texas. But so so it wasn't just like them intending to blow up the field of, of social sciences. In many cases, it was them trying to actually use these ideas and then found them to be wanting. And it challenged, the, you know, what the social sciences were what, what one historian called like the science of society, right? And so when they had tried to apply those, they found out it didn't work. And that's when they start, start to break. And so I began that chapter with these 1968 civil rights hearings in San Antonio. And so this is 1968. So we're like four years into the war on poverty. We've got all these great society programs, arguably the high point of American liberalism in 1968, right? Like after, after that we get, we get Nixon and (laughs) right. We start to see status liberalism decline. Well, if you listen to, uh, if, if, if you listen to any, of the testimonies from those 1968 or read, I guess I don't think you can listen to them, but if you read those testimonies from that commission, you would think that it was an abject failure, right? Like Mexican Americans or ethnic Mexicans still suffered high rates of poverty, high rates of disease, high rates of, of um, or very low rates of education. And so I put two pictures in that chapter, one of the West side in, I believe 1936 and one from the West side in 1968 or within the, in the 1960s. And you arguably couldn't tell them apart, right? It looks like no change. And even by that time, there was still very little running water in the West side barrio. There weren't as, I mean, folks were still a large percentage of the population in the West side or a significant population was still using latrines, right? Like outhouses, um, and then, and, and so hunger and famine was, was a real problem, even in 1968. I didn't include it in this book, but even in 1968, there was, um, there was a, a CBS documentary called Hunger in America that showcased San Antonio, 
um, which is a really powerful like primary source for teaching. Um, but it just shows all of these children and how malnourished they are. In fact, the opening scene is actually a young infant dying of malnourishment. Um, it, it is, yeah, it's, it's, it's really heavy. And so this was the high point of liberalism. And, and so you're saying like, this is why we get a group of activists, academics, organizers starting to say these ideas don't work. Right. So it wasn't just I end the chapter. It wasn't just generational, although arguably it it could be right, like in generations. But it was also this change of ideas as well, that that it wasn't just they were like, no, those guys are squares. You know, it wasn't it wasn't that simple that they just thought old people uh, were lame or anything like that. Um, It wasn't like the don't trust anyone over 30 kind of idea of that, that was popular among the new left. But they actually tried Uh, some of those ideas and found them to fail and they weren't working very well. And so that's why you see that shift away from Mexican American liberalism of, of statist liberalism uh, of, of focusing on citizenship in many cases um, by these, these young folks who are starting to call themselves Chicana and Chicano. Yeah. I mean, I just quickly to that, I, I found the, um, I, his full name is escaping me, but Benya's story in Basel, um, so so clear in that transition of being like him being like, hey, these things aren't actually working, and putting more pressure on the institution, and then Mexican American liberals being like, whoa, that's a little too radical for us, right? So that that transition where he is kind of that that movement between, right? And but I want to get to chapter five. Um, you lay out, and I love that you sort of were like, the Chicana Chicana movement isn't just one thing, right? There are many different directions, many different ideologies, right? And you lay out three here. Um, why did you feel these three were important to talk about in this in the context of this book in the 20th century? Yeah. So El Peña is really interesting. I, pr- I probably should have mentioned him in, in, uh, in that question. But there, yeah, so I wanted to make clear that certainly the Chicano movement wasn't just one thing and that we definitely see that there are so many ideas because I felt like kind of more recent Chicana, Chicano movement historiography was, was, was increasingly critical of the Chicano movement. Although I've been, I think it was meant, not meant as a compliment, but I have been called neo-Chicano in my interpretation, I think. I don't think that was meant as a compliment, but I'll take it as a compliment, I guess. Uh, (laughs) But I did think it was important because there were these big changes, although I certainly didn't want to say that these were the only three, right? Like, I think there's still a lot that needs to be done about like brown capitalism, which I think would be a really fascinating intellectual history. Um, But these three, I thought, fit in to how we're beginning to understand belonging and theorizing space and, and homeland that they came out of the Chicano movement. Right. Um, and so they, they kind of intersected with this, I think this big concept that was found all over the Chicano movement of, of Atzlan. Right. And so what was Atzlan? Was it, was it this hope that we would actually create this liberated nation, independent nation state there there were some who wanted that, right? And again, if we understand how folks were understanding like liberation at mid-century, like that was the course of development, right? Like the way that you would reach stature and equality was you needed this independent nation state that would then be recognized by the international 
body of of other nation states, you know. And so th- there were some, but many folks who were using Atslan did not necessarily think they would achieve revolution, like re- revolutionary liberation that way, right? Um, and so liberation belonging starts starts to shift. And so there were uh, differences, though, in, in how they understood Atslan. And so I lay out kind of barrio cultural nationalism, and that was understanding like the barrio as being the place where Chicanas and Chicanos belonged. And it meant these certain sets of ideas. And that was kind of independence. That was almost like a, that it was like a independent state, but it was also like largely independence from like white America, right? Independence from these, these colonizers. Now, did they want like their own nation state? No. And that was what was complicated about Radio cultural nationalism is that yeah, some folks are like, no, we should have our own bank, <laughs> right? And that's very different from from someone who says like, no, we should have yeah, like we should have our own independent nation. But but the issue with radio cultural nationalism it was certainly working class. It was really it was while it had some shortcomings, which I make clear in the chapter, it was really important in that it begins to to change the way that the community in these barrios understood itself. Right. Um, and so there were, there were problems of gang violence in many of these communities that, that the Chicanismo, right. Of, of their particular strain of Chicanismo really does remedy, right. Like they start to see themselves not as different gangs, but as one raza. Um, they see their, their responsibility, not as, as, as kind of causing trouble, but as trying to help the community. And so the, the vato loco in in the in the case of barrio cultural nationalism becomes really important. He he because it's gendered, right? Like he is going to be the agent of change. He's responsible, and those skills, those those things he learned as a vato loco are going to translate, right? Like those are the skills he's going to need to protect his community. Those are the skills he's going to need to protect his wife or the children or the people within the community. And so they have to be kind of tough. They have to be uh, masculine. They, they have to be violent. They need to be aggressive. Um, but that was, that was one of the problems, right? Like that they, that they largely understood uh, kind of political disenfranchisement uh, within those gendered understandings, right? And so that's why you get so much of of the language of like political emasculation, right? That they've been uh, they've been politically castrated or they've been emasculated, and so so why so much of their their writings and ideas came out as as this this necessity to like sexually conquer um, both, right? Like their their partners and also society uh in, in many cases they 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 had to be virile right as as lovers and as activists and so uh you see that in the work of of like the poet ricardo sanchez you even see that in in the work of uh abelardo delgado um you see that in the work of a lot of the like the pintos in places like uh huntsville prison and in and uh in different places and so there was in this case, I had I, I do call this like an intellectual history. I do mention in the introduction that I think this sits at the intersection of intellectual, cultural, and literary history. And so in this chapter, uh, there is some recovery going on. Like I, I try to use less well-known examples. I, you know, you get so much. There's certainly like Luis Valdez and a little bit of Corky Gonzalez, but I, I figured that within 
like the folks who probably read this and even maybe folks who weren't familiar, I did want to make it accessible, but like they probably have already read I am Joaquin. Um, so I wanted to show that, that, that these ideas were influential, not just among say, you know, traditional intellectuals or these professional intellectuals, but like somebody was so moved by these ideas in like Huntsville state prison that they began to write poetry. Right. And so being a, a historian, I don't have to be as concerned with um, like the, the, the literary quality or right. Like in quotes, like the literary quality of it, like there are probably better examples better like poetry that I could have used, but I thought it was really important to show that these are regular folks so moved by these ideas that, that they, that they write, that they paint murals, that they actually go and join an organization, that that's how powerful they were, even knowing they aren't the best painters or the best poets or something like that. Um, But again, that, that, that Mario cultural nationalism was, was really limited in its understanding of liberation. And, and so troubling, it was, it was so sexist that, that, yeah, it, it had all kinds of problems with it. And so folks that, that was an important set of ideas, but it was one that, that inhibited more folks from participating in it. And so then I, I kind of look at, oh yeah. I was going to say, just maybe maybe to finish it up, maybe taking that idea and talk about Chicano feminist transnationalism and perhaps how throughout the 20th century, right, in the book, you've sort of highlighted moments where Chicanas, Mexican-American women, ethnic Mexican women in general have always kind of um, at one point, like, been identified as needing to be docile, but also have not, right? We've seen like Emma Tenayuca, there's another, there are women in the Chicano feminist transnationalism section where you talk about they were even too radical for some of the Chicanos, right? Like, like there are women who are kind of breaking molds all over the place. So maybe um, finishing out this chapter with talking about how Chicano feminist transnationalism played in or played or played with the Chicano movement and like their ideologies of, of their own identity making. Yeah. I think again, being, being Chicana there, they understood how some of these institutions, how troubling some of these institutions were and how much they needed to be transformed. Right. Like, so I think, uh, in, in many cases, like the Lulackers and other folks were like, Hey, the only thing bad about like city council is that you won't let me serve on it. Right. Uh, or the only thing bad about the military is that I can't make Sergeant or something like that. Right. Um, and I think Chicanas were really at the forefront of saying like, no, the military is bad because it is part of this like imperial project that kills lots of folks, usually women and children. Um, and so their understanding of that uh, really pushed them to to be critical of so many of these institutions to reveal the the, the structural failings and the structural problems uh, of all these institutions that were beyond just like liberal reforms. Um and I think Chicanas, right? Like there was, there was a, a, there was a deeply kind of homophobic strain in so much of the activism of the Chicano movement that applied to uh, Chicanas, whether they were queer or not, right? Like many who said, "Hey, we're, we're feminists," they were called with like meaning to be an insult that they were like lesbians, and then many of them said, "Well, we're not," but why is that wrong? Right. And so you start to see these, these coalitions, these solidarities, these connections between Chicanas uh, 
recognizing and understanding the interconnections and, and giving space and making space, right? Making space for um, eventually like, like queer theorizing and, and, and queer understandings of, right? Like the problems of heteronormativity within the Chicano movement um, and rethinking, right? That like, within these basic human relationships, like these greater, they, they understood the greater structural problems in the world, but they also understood how you had to like transform these very basic human sexual and sensual relationships uh, as well, right? Like how those were kind of the, the foundation that we had to build upon. Um, and so that's what I look at in, in, in that section of chapter five. Yeah. Well, yeah, and at the end of chapter five, you make so clear the important, and you just talked about it, right? The importance of Chicana, Chicano art as a way to imagine other worlds and consciousness, um, other modes of consciousness. Um, and I think you did that so well with, like you said, including so many poets and their work in this, in, in especially chapter five, uh, who aren't maybe as well known or as well received. So thank you for that. Um, but do you have anything that you want to add for the conclusion or just sort of like rounding out the conversation of the book? Like, where do you hope this book, who do you hope this book is read by? How do you hope it helps graduate students just in general? Any other thoughts? Yeah, I, the little feedback I've had, I've gotten back from the the conclusion is it ends on a kind of depressing note (laughs) 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 and it does. I, I think so much, uh, needs to be done like on that post 1970s period. And I think there was some, some really interesting attempts by historians to kind of reperiodize our understanding of like the civil rights movement, not as just like this added chapter in this liberal fancy story, but understanding it as this larger ideological transformation. Right. And so again, that was that conclusion was another attempt to put ethnic Mexicans at the center of like, what Daniel T. Rogers called the age of fracture, right? Like you can read that whole book, which I was influential, but where, where Chicanas and Chicanos, right? So I want to say like, we were, we were there, right? Also trying to understand how are we, how is the, the larger like Latinx community now understanding belonging, uh, especially in this new neoliberal era, right? Um, and so I was trying to, there, I, I mentioned that like, like neoliberalism is this idea um, that we're going to have to deal with and that that Mexican-Americans have also made concessions to, right, for better or worse. Um, and so that was the the conclusion. Um, I guess who I, I hope reads the book is, is as many folks as possible. I tried to, when rewriting this from the dissertation uh, into the monograph, is, is I definitely tried to minimize the jargon and the theorizing um, because I did want to make it accessible to, to non-academics. I wanted undergraduates to be able to read it and not just at the upper division level. I really hoped that this could be read at those intro levels, at those survey levels. I really wanted folks who who aren't academics, who aren't in school anymore to be able to pick it up and read it. And I intentionally wanted it to be relatively short Um Again, the, the dissertation was, I think, north of 300 pages. And so I wanted, I did, I knew folks wouldn't want to read that outside of a handful of like graduate students. Although I want graduate students to read it, certainly, but I wanted uh, it, it to be read uh, by as many folks as, as possible. And so I tried to limit some of, of the way that 
academics sometimes write um, that is that is not the best writing um, that is not as as accessible. And I think, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I no, I was just going to say, I think for myself, uh, I thought that it was incredibly accessible, and that I would, I, I would, and am going to assign at least a couple of chapters in my classes, especially when thinking about uh, early twentieth century identity formation. So. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, but I think just to sort of help wrap us up, um, before we go, the last question that we tend to ask on this podcast is, what are you working on now? I think you're, the last part of that question was cut off. I'm sorry, Jonathan. Oh, no, 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 fine. That's fine. Uh, I was going to say, usually the last question we tend to ask on this podcast is, what are you working on now? Okay, I've got... I'm working on 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 two two things that I haven't worked on as much as I'd like to, given the last year has been a pandemic and I've been at home and my two kids have been at home and it doesn't lend itself to writing as well. Um, there's so there's two academic projects. I think there's a shorter article that I'm working on uh, that is I've, I've tentatively titled "Los Académicos um, Chicana Chica." Well, no, I think it's it's yeah, I think ethnic Mexican social scientists and the science of society, right? And so it's an ex- it, it builds more upon that little section in chapter four. And so I'd actually like to jump into more of those mid-century social scientists. So not just like uh, Jose Juan Gutierrez and David Montejano and Julian Zamora and how they're, they really do grapple with these ideas and actually transform it, right? Again, putting, putting Chicana and Chicano studies at the center of these big ideas and actually showing how it's in conversation and actually drives the conversation for some, uh, in, in some areas. Um, so that's, that's, it's the, the, the title is actually taken from a poem that David Montano, I don't know if you'd remember next time I talk to him, I'll ask if he remembers it, but it was a poem he wrote as a graduate student in one of these Chicano movement journals, I think it was Caracol, right? And, and uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's like, Osicos de Iguana, lleno de mierda, or something, something like that, mm. right? Like, it's this really angry wow. um, poem directly aimed at academics, right? And the field that he wants to go into. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm interested in, 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 in the social sciences is kind of a little bit more of like a, a traditional intellectual history of placing Chicana and Chicano and ethnic Mexican thinkers on par with what the, the field has done uh, to shake it up. Uh, the longer research project that I hope would be my next monograph that I've kind of started on is, is a, is a, is a history of Mexican American conservatism and, and really trying to, I, I mentioned it a little bit in, in this book, but I call it uh, civil rights, social conservatism and, and tracking that through uh, the 20th century, maybe a little bit into the, the beginning of the 21st, but looking at it, I mean, you see it in the groups like LULAC um, and those. And, and I feel like that, that answers this debate in, in my mind, it answers this debate that we have in Chicana and Chicano historiography. Like, is LULAC liberal or is it conservative? Well, civil rights, social conservatism, in the way that I'm thinking of it, answers it by saying it's both, right? Like, it's 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 both. Like, they're pushing for civil rights, but they also have this understanding of what civil rights can do and how they should come about and why. 
in a different way that we don't associate it with it. And eventually it gets broke in, in the Chicano movement, civil, uh, civil rights, social conservatism kind of gets unhitched, right? It gets detached from some and it finds its, its new home in, in the, in the remaking of, of the new right, right. In those new political coalitions that began to form in the seventies and eighties. So I kind of would like to trace that through there, um, look a little bit at, at those Brown capitalisms, maybe looking at those, uh, community development corporations that were popular in, in the Chicano movement. So um, something like the East LA, uh, what is the East LA community union? I think Teleku, um, Mexican American unity council, Chicano Sport La Causa in Arizona. Um, and then, and then, and so, you know, they, they start out as like these Chicano organizations and then turn into like these community development corporations and continue into like the nineties and, and, and they're still in existence today. Uh, and then maybe picking it up and looking at something like the essays of Richard Rodriguez in the eighties and nineties, um, and maybe ending up in, 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 you know, that, that Mexican American conservatism in, of the Bush administration, right. Who, who George W. Bush, um, who does, who's the high watermark for, for Republican outreach at the time. Um, but that's, that's early. I mean, I'm, that's, I haven't been, well, when I haven't had time to get to the archives in the last year, but also the archives have been closed for the last year. Um, but that's what I'd like my, my next project to be my academic project to be. I mean, I think both of those sound fascinating and fantastic and I'm, I'm so excited and can't wait to, to read them whenever you're ready to, to, you know, show them. Um, I don't thank you so much for being on the show with us today. I really enjoyed our talk. I was zoned in like I was listening to a lecture. Um, And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, Jonathan. This has been a real treat. Of course. All right. Thank you. Goodbye.